Welcome to Full and Frank, a series of podcasts from Macris Exchange, spanning the worlds of finance, politics, sport and the media. Welcome to this podcast on behalf of Aquis Exchange. I'm Michael Wilson and I'm joined by my good friend and of course colleague as well in the commentating game, David Buick. Morning. Morning to you, Michael. And I'm very pleased to say we're joined by um, a real voice from the City of London, a, a, a leading commentator and, of course, asset manager, Charles Newsom, who is Director of Wealth Management at Investec. Charles, um, or may I call you Charlie or should it be Charles? I much prefer Charlie. Charlie, good morning. Well, thanks indeed for joining us. Let me, let's, let's start it off right, right from the very beginning. What, what took you to the city in the first place, if I may ask? So I, I suppose... Working at stockbroking is always something that absolutely fascinated me. And it was something I always wanted to do. My problem was in, in my early stage of my career that I didn't get a degree. I suffered from dyslexia in a time which it really wasn't recognised in education, had very poor A-levels, didn't manage to get to university and struggled with life to work out where my journey was going to be. And worked in all sorts of different places from pubs to I worked at the um, rugby livestock market um, selling, selling sheep and cattle, which was a great education, I have to say. Eventually, I was offered a job with a, in a very small broker's called Albert E. Sharp in Birmingham. Oh, and, yeah. and my father said to me at the time, because uh, I was very uncertain about working in Birmingham, he said, well, it's a foot in the door and it'll get you started. And he was dead right. Um, and that's where I started. Albert E. Sharp was, was quite a... Uh, an outfit in the Midlands, though. I mean, it was highly respected. It was highly respected. It had one um, vision, which is something that's completely taken over the investment management market, is that it realised that discretionary portfolio management was the future, um, and it was very early to that. It was also very early to selling discretionary portfolio management to the IFA community, um, and they took it on board very quickly, and it managed to grow very quickly, too. What sort of skills do you think, first of all, you know, with this, this rather peculiar business of selling livestock, where it's not a peculiar business if you're doing it, it's probably a very important business. What, what sort of skills do you think did it, did it teach you? Because you, you seem to have succeeded in early life, you know, despite all the things that fortune was throwing at you, particularly dyslexia, for example. I, I just think, you know, um, I was very, dyslexia is a funny thing. Uh, and I'm still struggling with it in, into my 50s. But if you find a subject which you are fascinated in and gives and it really it really inspires you, you can get over many of the many of the issues. And I've always been fascinated by Warren Buffett. And I have, if you look downstairs in my library, I have a huge number of books about Warren Buffett and Benjamin Graham and value investing and and his whole approach to managing money. Uh, and I find that that studying very easy. Um, so I, I, one of the things I've always felt, and, and you know, the arrival of Amazon helped me tremendously, was because I was able to buy you know a lot of really interesting books about how to invest money. You know, one of the issues with I think when I was learning my my trade from with all the exams we had to go through, they used to learn you know used to learn how to work out a book value and a PE ratio and all those sort of things, but no one really ever taught you about what a successful investment looks like. And I've always had the approach in my career, you know, study successful people and, you know, because they leave tips. Ask yourself why they made a certain decision. Don't copy it, 
if you want to copy it, fine, but really understand their thought process. Did you ever go to Omaha to see the great man? And, or have you ever clocked into any of those annual general meetings, which were attended apparently by thousands of people? I went um, to the um, annual general meeting in 2016. Um, it was quite helpful because you have to get there really, really early, like 4 a.m. Really? If, oh, you, if you want to get into the main hall, you want to get in the main hall, which is huge, great big indoor basketball court, basically, uh, arena, um, you need to be there at 4 a.m. To, to queue up, to be at the front of the queue. Otherwise, you will have to sit in one of the subsequent halls. I mean, tens of thousands of people go to watch. It is immense. It, actually, Warren and, and Charlie, when I went, were still, you know, pretty much with it. I think Warren is, uh, unfortunately, Charlie is, you know, he's fading away now. Um, and I think sad. I was lucky when I, it is very sad, when I went. Um, we, and we, we talked about all sorts of fascinating subjects. But going to the Berkshire Halfway Annual General Meeting is not just about listening to Warren and Charlie. You meet some really fascinating people who just, you know, who think the world of Warren and Charlie, but, you know, are not necessarily, you know, value investors in the true sense of the word. He's always been very good because he's admitted his mistakes. As I, memory serves me right, Charlie, he never jumped on the tech bandwagon early on, did he, in the late he, 90s? No, he and admitted it, said, I'm wrong, but I'd rather be in Coca-Cola and Gillette and companies like that. Yeah, he's admitted several things. I mean, obviously, in the last in the last five or seven years, he's built a very big stake in Apple. Um, but he's got these two, um, you know, lieutenants in, in Todd and Ted, who, um, you know, have brought his thinking along quite a long way. And I think they are perhaps much more to, to do with the arrival of Apple in the, in the portfolio. Could, could I ask you, Charlie, just, just I know D David wants, wants to jump in and, and, and talk about things, a, a lot of detail, particularly about private equity and I, IPOs and so on. But just you, you've, you haven't quite answered the question, if I may say. So you, you say don't copy things, but, but take examples from people. So in your view, what, what are the main tests of a good investment, if I may ask? The main test of a good investment. I mean, I think the first thing is you need to invest in a company that has a what Warren describes as a moat around the business. It is a brand or a product that, you know, if you want that product, whether it's an Apple iPhone or whether that's, you know, I talk about Twining's English breakfast tea. I know that's the only tea I'm interested in having at home. And whatever the price is, it, you know, when you go to the proverbial supermarkets, if you want that product, you have to pay that price. Um, and I will only want to invest in, in, in companies or, and or services that offer that primarily. They also need to be very well-managed business, businesses run by people who have a large stake in the equity, not just large salaries and, and large expenses. So what you want is managers, is what you're saying? I want managers, mm. yeah, that manage good businesses. Good managers that manage bad businesses, unfortunately, normally remain as bad businesses. I wanted to just, you, you talked about Warren Buffett, but other people have obviously brought influence to bear with you. I mean, Anthony Bolton, presumably, his huge success at Fidelity before we had a bit of a whoopsie in China. And then he's, tell, tell us a little bit about him. And also, uh, you know, Simon Wilson, who, you know, is somebody as a businessman that I would be hugely um, held in awe, but a little bit on his investment advice. And I'd quite like to hear. So I uh, listen to Anthony quite regularly. Um, and I remember on one occasion, um, he used to do, the Fidelity used to do these lunches for investors, which I, yeah. they probably still do. Um, and, um, I, you know, when Anthony was, was there, I regularly used to go and look at him because he was one of the leading investors mm, in the UK definitely. with a phenomenal track record. 
Um, and I remember this one lunch he, he would listen to, and most people had left, and for some reason he hadn't eaten any sandwich or something, and he had 10 minutes to spare. He said, I'm just going to sit here and eat my sandwich. Most people had walked out by then. Um, and he asked me, um, quite sort of privately, and two or three other people there, you know, what's your approach to managing money? And we talked about value, and, you know, we talked about, you know, things we look for. And he said, the one thing that's made it, big change to me in my overall approach over my career is using charts as an investment tool, you know, to having a chart approach to making investments, still using all traditional tools, but also having a technical analysis overlay. And I didn't know, I knew very little about technical analysis at that stage. And I thought that was very good advice from somebody who was, you know, a foremost investor at the time and went off and did my diploma in technical analysis. And it's made a massive difference to my career. I'm it's, really it's, surprised to hear the say that. Yeah. It's not, it is not the be all and end all of what you do. No. It is a tool in the investment toolbox only. What, do, you, do, you, do you feel that, I mean, we, we hear a lot of, news these days and I don't know whether it's noise or news about you know shareholders and uh, taking particular views about companies and so on I suppose they always have done do you feel as though shareholders are more important now and and what do you think the difference between a shareholder and a stakeholder is I think you know this brings in the, the whole question of what's going on with ESG yeah. and I think our industry hasn't asked enough questions and been tough enough with senior management on all sorts of issues, anything from child labour to their, uh, their carbon footprint to their unrelenting, um, you know, dash for profit and, uh, and not thinking about the, the, the tale of what they've created behind them. Um, and I think our industry has, has been too lax in accepting this and it is about time that we put a lot of pressure on management to vote down uh, poorly judged um, incentive schemes for senior management to, to, to ask them to call for account on their ESG score. I am not suggesting that we should go and invest in the best, only the best ESG companies out there with best scores. We need to put pressure on all companies. And in, in my opinion, the, the best way to make success out of ESG as an investor is to try and find the companies that are on the ESG journey and going to turn into really truly great companies, very well managed with great products, all those other things, rather than the best companies with the best ESG scores at the moment. And that is a danger for me. Can I be the devil's advocate here and say choice seems to have gone out of the window for the shareholder. He's going to be told what to do. Am I being a bit cynical, Charlie? Uh, because I genuinely feel there comes a time when the shareholder just too often in the course of the last 10 years just gets swept aside. He's not considered, and he's the one that's putting the money up. Now, if you are a believer in ESG and ethical investments, and I, I think people are coming around to that way of thinking, if we're going to we'll save the world over the course of the next 50 years, we have to give that some consideration. But I hate the idea of choice being out the window. I, I look, I think... Uh, it's managements have been too free and easy with shareholder money. The best companies that we've invested on uh, over time that provided the best returns, I believe, are those companies where the management eat their own cooking, so they have a large stake in the in the in, in the shareholders' return. The companies that haven't and have ride roughshod over investors tended to have a very poor 
um, investment in any equity. Right, okay. And those, you know, those are the companies we must avoid. Um, and, and finally, sooner or later, management will, will understand this. I'd like, Charlie, if I may, to ask you about IPOs. Um, I've, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert like you, but I've been looking at some of the things that have, that have, that have come to market. And it's clear that the, the tail's been wagging the dog, in my view, that there's, there's a load of money floating around and people are looking at some recent IPOs, particularly in the United States, and, and just throwing money at them. And they're, they're assuming these massive valuations. And, you know, a, a traditionalist would look at these, and what, when are they going to actually start turning turning a profit or even justifying these PE ratios that, that you had to calculate when you were a lad, as it were. Do you, do you, do you feel as though that IPOs are sort of, at the moment, having a life of their own? Um, they do. And there's a lot of things driving this. My first general speak, speaking advice about IPOs is probably don't invest in IPOs. It's very rare for me to invest in an initial offering unless I really believe in the management and I, and I believe in, in what they're going to do. Probably I will have, I will, I will have, you know, I will know the management very well personally. I think the problem we've got here with IPOs is there is too much cash swash, um, swirling around, sw swirling around the yeah. system looking for homes. Um, and you know we've got returns in in, in banks and in and fixed income which are, are nearly zero. So people are desperately trying to find ideas, um, and they are prepared to pay some quite extraordinary prices um, and not be demanding enough about valuations um, that are being you know being asked by management and, and the banks that are issuing these deals. Unfortunately, there are still plenty of people that are prepared to pay these extraordinary prices. And, and IPO seasons, or, you know, they go in, in, in fashions. Uh, and in the last 12 months or so, we've seen a lot of them. And it will calm down again and go quiet again because people won't be able to get the deals and prices that they, they dream of, I suspect. Surely the situation, which brings me on really dovetailing with, with private equity, is that an IPO, please correct me if I'm wrong, is a very expensive way of corporate dealing is that debt finance is incredibly cheap on a pro rata basis. And that's why private equity has had the opportunity since COVID, where many assets, particularly in the United Kingdom, look unbelievably cheap. I mean, I was reading some statistic, I think it was yesterday, saying that private equity, mainly from the United States, has scooped up something like £238 billion worth of assets in this country. And a lot of people are saying, hang on a minute, you know, well, we understand why they're saying, hang on a minute, when it comes to defence companies like kinetic and ultra electronics and uh, common, I get that. But in other areas, now we're going to have the arm one, I think could get thrown out. But on the whole, Charlie, I think debt finance has been pretty cheap, hasn't it? it I mean, it is cheap. It all comes down, Relatively cheap. It, it, it all comes down to a very low level of, um, of interest rates. And that is what's going to fundamentally change this market. When money becomes more expensive, a lot of these deals are going to go straight out the window and they're not going to be achievable. Um, but, you know, it comes back to the same thing in, in private equity. There is a, the, there's a lot of money trying to find homes. Um, and if they, think, if they think that private equity can give them a, a good return over their cost of capital, they will invest in private equity. Um, with, with private equity, it always seems to me that, you know, if you're patient and you're, you're skillful, you will personally make a lot of money. 
Um, but on the way, you will make you there will be quite a lot of people you hurt along the way. I'm afraid. We've seen. Uh, I'd like to choose one from what I call M and A activity, and one from the IPO field, where occasionally there is a serious misjudgment on valuation. And we look like temporarily we're going to have a bit of a problem with Deliveroo, which went down very sharply, came back again, and I think that's sort of writing itself. But the one that you know really uh, worries me, worried me, is the Hut Group, which was a highly Hut. I don't even if you're not an expert in it, it doesn't matter. Its share price, because of its corporate governance and because of the way the company's run, has come down 72% since just over a year ago. And then the other one I want to, um, and I think that's on a lot of that, that company was valued at one point, I think it's 7.1 billion pounds. Huge amount of money for an aspiring business that is not really, they call themselves a tech company because it's on that, but is it really? I don't know. And the other one brings to me out is autonomy where occasionally you get a, a takeover deal that is badly priced or lacking in information or lacking in clarity, whatever word you wanted. And that one, of course, went through, I think it was 11 billion pounds with 2010 dollars, I think it was, that autonomy was sold to Hewlett Packard. And then Meg Whitman, who was the chief executive, she decided that she'd have the drains up and didn't like particularly what she saw. Don't you think we ought to have more due and care and attention to what I call um, you know, looking at these um, situations and making sure that they don't happen. I know it's a word for it, but, uh, you know. Uh, the Hut Group is an interesting one, and I, I have to say I've heard and, and, and listened to quite a lot of commentators um, and, and professional investors who have been, you know, really quite rude about what they've seen there uh, and some of the greed by the senior management. Uh, um, and I heard someone very recently saying he, he, he felt that, the Hutt Group could reach the 90% club, um, which is quite an achievement, really. I'm glad you mentioned autonomy because autonomy is a, is a story that is somewhat personal to me. I, I felt, before autonomy was taken over, I felt there was something fundamentally wrong about the business. Every year, just before the results, there seems to be yet another takeover. Um, and acquisition counting in this in this country and, and globally gives you an, a, a, an, a great ability to move almost, you know, losses into profits and at a quite exceptional rate. And, and I, it was a company that I was on and off short of. I have a short on a CFD personally, never for clients, quite a lot of times over the years because I have fundamentally felt that it was overvalued and there was something not right about it. Fortunately, I, I was sensible enough to close that short and give up on it. Um, and, 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 you know, and it, it pains me to even talk about this story because it was a fairly expensive loss. Not, not a career-defining loss, fortunately. I was always, always fairly sensible about it. But it, 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 it took some getting over. And eventually, the company was taken over by Hewitt Packard, as you say, for an enormous amount of money. Fairly quickly, uh, Meg Whitman discovered that, you know, a large part, if not all of that investment should be written off, and they had exceptional poor value for money. What surprises me is that, you know, I'm a fairly humble investment manager um, and by no means um, a highly qualified accountant. But if I spotted, and quite a few other people spotted, there was a fraud here um, and it was not quite what it, what it was, why on earth? A huge company like Hewitt Packard hadn't, or the people that advised them, hadn't told them 
this is not a very good business. Be very careful about what you pay. That's for me about due diligence. I mean, it looks like this was sort of swept through or the accountants or something were saying, well, look, that's all you need to know when probably they needed to know an awful lot more. But this is where, I get, when you come back, Michael, you know, to due care and attention or due diligence, I think it's, it's, it's used as a flippant phrase rather than one is, I am going to have the drains up before I buy that. This doesn't necessarily apply to autonomy. This applies to everyone. Yeah. And, you know, a number of times that you've seen with IPOs that Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan or Morgan Stanley have put an enormous price on something and it goes through and everybody says, there's never going to be value for money. Uh, and then it opens at a 10 or 20% discount or whatever it might be. I mean, that's probably exaggerating, but you know what I mean? But it does recover. But it's just, as you say, this greed element. And why does this enormous mistakes happen in terms of valuations? Is it because we're paying a huge price for expectation? As this is? I, I think that there are, you know, in life, there are senior managers who have, who have to be very single-minded about about their life and their approach to management, um, and they um, and they don't they don't take criticism well, or people around them just aren't prepared to say, "Hey, listen, hang on a second, let's just think this over." I'm not sure about it for the following reasons, um, and I think too often people don't perhaps listen enough, mm -hmm. or people are just too scared to them. Just from a career point of view, saying this is the wrong thing. I think it's as simple as that. Do you feel um, more generally, this, this is a horrible one really, I suppose, in, in lots of ways, because it just adds, it, it, it's, it's such an uncertain art, this, but do you feel as though our central bankers, and I'm talking about the Bank of England and the Fed, are slightly behind the curve, sending out funny kinds of signals at the moment? I mean, I don't know about you, I thought the other week we were going to get an interest rate rise, all those kind of signals came out, and we didn't get one in the UK. Now, again, it's nudge and winks and all the rest of it. What, what, what's, what's your feeling about a, inflation, and B, interest rates as we head into 2022? Michael, this is perhaps the most important question for investors in the next 12 to 24 months about what is going to happen to interest rates. I, I'm not... I, I'm actually a little bit worried that, that overall the market is too sanguine about this. I think interest rates might have to go rather higher than people think, and this could have a fairly major impact on the equity market. It may not, and we may have, it may be just transitory and coming through, and we'll go back to where we were pre-COVID. You know, there, there's, there are both strong arguments on both sides for this, but if the market gets even a hint that central banks are being politically led and not truly independent, as, as some people suspect they might be, the market could have really quite a difficult period. If you remember, remember towards the end of 2018, the market had, in the last quarter of 2018, and particularly in the last few weeks, November, December, the market had a really shocking time led by the US. Um, and that was simply a, a fear that interest rates were going to go rather higher than people ever, uh, people thought. I mean, there were some other things going on about China trade, trade war and other worries. Um, and in the UK, people were beginning to get a bit sort of, get a bit nervous about Brexit. But ultimately, it came down to the cost of capital uh, and what's going to happen to, to inflation. Just to develop a variation on the theme there, because I think it's very interesting, um, is that I'm very concerned about the carry-on that we had from Mark Carney's dynasty, where we had this forward guidance, which did not work. 
Um, I think he was at odds with Andy Haldane. Uh, forward guidance works for the Federal Reserve because it's such an extraordinary economy uh, with so many different regions contributing different things that you can get away with that. But I think forward guidance has been a real problem, whereas I think there was an overzealous uh, introduction of information that was probably superfluous to requirements and made us all think, for goodness sakes, because one minute kind of saying rates are going up, so then, then they didn't, they went down, and the economy did this. And then, so I'm not blaming him, but I just think he tried to make it too sophisticated. Whereas Andrew Bailey on the other side of the coin seems to be having a very close relationship, to pick Michael's point up, with Jay Powell, mm. that they are determined that they're not going to allow interest rates to trash growth. And they think and are telling us that uh, inflation is transitory and that once the supply chain gets sorted out, um, it'll be okay. Your point, which I think is 100% correct, is the supply chain ain't going to sort itself out in five minutes. It's Asia that is really driving this thing. And they are not allowing this stuff to come out of China. It went on six months before we did, straight up. And now it's off the boil, even though some of the data has not been too bad. I think what I'd like to have seen from Andrew Bailey, to pick Michael's point up again, is more guidance and leadership rather than seen from the same head, uh, him sheet as the Fed. Well, the problem, David, here is that equity markets are not cheap by any stretch of the imagination. And if things... What, even the UK? Even, well, perhaps the UK, yeah. but, you know, no, let's, sorry, yeah. let's not get onto that one yeah. too much. But generally speaking, world equity markets are probably too expensive if interest rates are going to go up. And if there is a, even the slightest slip and Andy Hildane and, and Powell have to sort of start, you know, rowing back a little bit or changing their mind a little bit, markets will get really quite windy quite quickly. Um, and that's the fine tightrope we're walking here. You know, at the moment, we, we have this, you know, we have this expression, which you've probably heard, which is Tina, which is there, there is no alternative but to invest in equity markets because other choices are the returns are so low and equity markets continue to reach new highs. I mean, you've got to stay with it. However, if that changes and the cost of capital starts creeping up, equity markets will have a bit of a problem. And I can't tell you how much it's going to be or how deep it's going to be. But what I can tell you is it's likely to be rather more painful than you might imagine. And those companies, private equity companies, who've done these uh, enormous deals during the course of the last 18 months through the pandemic, some huge deals done out of private equity, <coughs> with a significant amount of borrowing, they could find themselves under pressure for margins as well. They? they could find themselves under pressure. I mean, let's be let's be clear about this. I am not saying by any stretch of the imagination that people should be, you know, should be selling up and getting out of equities. At the moment, you've got to stay with it because markets are touching all-time highs and, and reports we see continue to be good. And there is no huge threat we, we've got coming through. The, the problem is if the inflation issue is rather more transitory than we might think. That's where you need to be careful. Markets always climb walls of worry. That's that's a fact of life. And I think you need to be aware of the, aware of the risks, but generally speaking, be, be fairly positive towards the equity market. Can I just add one rider, which I think is, is interesting um, for me, is that we hear increasingly that London is quickly becoming one of the fintech centers of the world. And the level of technology 
when even I turn my back, I admit that I'm not up with the pace. But technology is going to continue to drive our lives for the next for 10 years, at least, if not further. So we're going to get these add-on companies, which are going to get bought out by the Apples and the Intels and the various other people that Google's. go, the Googles, because they're, they're going to need them. Yeah, exactly. And that is going to give a certain impetus, I think, to um, the stock market not collapsing overall. Would you not slightly qualify your remarks saying that if interest rates do go up, and they will go up, and it's a question, as you're quite right to say, to what degree, there'll be still certain sectors of the world's economy that are worth investing in. Absolutely. <coughs> I think we, we, you know, whatever happens, you, you, we have to believe in the, uh, the power of human nature to recover from really very difficult situations. And COVID has been, and the pandemic has been really difficult. I remember hearing two year, uh, t- t- Mar- April, March, April, 2020, there was, a, there was a global pandemic specialist coming on and said, if you think this is going to last eight or 10 weeks, forget it, it's going to last three years. So we, we're, I think we're basically two years down the road. Yeah. We've got a, about a year to go. But the, 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 our ability to recover from things and, you know, and invest in future growth, the human nature is, it has always got over this. And the American economy particularly can move on very quickly. Our job as investors is to, is to find these companies, not invest in what I would call old economy type things, to find the new things, to find the new what I would describe as the new market leaders and mm. to invest in those. And sometimes you have to pay extraordinary prices for them, uh, and you, but you have to have vision. Um, and, but provided you, you invest with management teams and follow those basic rules, even if the valuation might be appear high, you will do very well over time. Before we draw stumps, two questions. Charlie Newsom is a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde character. He's got a professional situation, but you also have huge outside interests. Tell us about them very quickly. And the other thing is, tell us a little bit about Investec and why they've done so well in the last 25 years. Let's deal with Investec okay. first of all, because Investec have been fantastic for me. Um, I joined them from William Sabro in 2012, and they've allowed me to grow and, and put really amazing people around me, from compliance to audit to all sorts of amazing people who've allowed me to grow and offer a great product to to, to, to clients who come to us. And I've got two fantastic people to work with me, Stuart, Stuart Day and Alice Trosdale, and they're really supportive. Um, and I couldn't do it literally without Investec and, and without those two. Um, my home life is, I'm very passionate about sport um, and very ha- passionate about helping people. I, I manage a very talented group of young ladies um, who play for Women's Hockey Club. Um, in the National League um, and they've had a bit of a challenging season we had a win on Saturday which was great um, and I just firmly believe that you know I have been very successful in life and I'm very grateful for what you know for what Investec have, have done for me but I need to put back and in that's in all sorts of things um, so I enjoy it outside sport um, I'm a very keen sailor through the summer um, and in, uh, enjoy racing a very old boat I own um, and you know that's my life I've got Three kids who are growing up fast. One is about to, uh, he's having a year off, who is um, a sports gappy at a school in West London and two still at school. Um, and they will go on to university and I'm sure they'll do very well. Yes, indeed, Charlie. Thanks very much indeed. I mean, it, 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 illuminating as ever. Very grateful to you. Thank you.